as the word is opened up this morning. Lord, it is such a privilege, even in our day and our culture, to just stop from our work, to gather together as your people, to hear from your word how we might be your people, walking with you and with one another. And I ask, Lord, that you would encourage this, your people, and the great truths that this past teaches us, which were so countercultural in the day they were written as they're countercultural today. And Lord, may you be glorified in us as by your Holy Spirit we think your thoughts, that your words would be mine, and that you would take our wills and bend them to yours, and take our hearts, and take every single one of our hearts, and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, we're continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians with the lectionary. So this week we're covering verse you know, 15 all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 33. But we're going to go to spiritual warfare in verse 10. That's what the lectionary does. It doesn't necessarily cover every verse. And uh, so we're going to be wrapping it up next week as we talk about gearing up in the spiritual battle. But we've really talking about the practical aspects of the Christian life. That's what Paul does in verses, chapters 1 through 3. It's very highly theological. 4 through 6, very practical, relevant for us today. And so we pick up where we left off from last week. That last week we learned that our lives are to be a fragrant offering to the Lord. And as we live this fragrant offering, we're not to be like the Ephesian world or our world in the sexual ethics. We're not to be like the Ephesian world or our world in our speech ethics. (laughs) We're not to be like the Ephesian world or our world in their idolatry, in that they get drunk. Oh, we are to be filled with the Spirit. And as we're filled with the Spirit, we glorify God no matter where we are, and we shine His light. Did you catch that last week? That this fragrant offering shines a light into the darkness, and people notice the light. And so, I'm sure if you're like me, you walked away last Sunday and you said, man, I'm I'm missing it on this aspect of my life, or that aspect of my life, and we're creating a culture of grace right here at Christ Church. That's why we do the welcome the way we do. We want everyone to know, no matter where you are, you're in a good place this morning. And so I was reminded of John Newton's saying. This is something which is good for each and every one of us. John Newton, as many of you know, is the great Anglican minister, slave trader, turned Anglican minister, and served the heart of the impoverished area of London. And he wrote the words to Amazing Grace, which was his life story. He said this, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a man who gets sanctification. That's a man that gets there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's a guy who gets that he doesn't accept the spiritual immaturity in his life, but loves others along the way. 
no matter where they are in their spiritual maturity. And that's who we're trying to be at Christ Church. So having said all that, coming off of last week, we continue with the thought that as we learn through this text today that healthy family relationships is part of what it means to shine in the world. Our marriages matter to our witness. Our parenting and being children matter. Being a good employer and employee according to the Lord's formula matters. And what I discovered was, you know, we actually have challenges that the Ephesians did not. They had their challenges, certainly. But one of the things that we have today in our society is that there is a deep confusion about marriage itself, right? And what it is and what it means for us as individuals in a society. So we're going to look at this passage today rather thematically, all right? I preached on this earlier this year, you know. Uh, if you want a more detailed exposition, I encourage you to go back in the archives. It's there. I've preached on this text in 11 years four times. I look back at my notes. So uh, if you've been with me, you've heard this before, but I decided to take it a little more thematically. And what you really learn in this text thematically is there's three great truths this path teaches us. It teaches us the prerequisites for a healthy marriage. It teaches us the purpose of marriage, and it teaches us the priority of relationships within marriage. Okay? The prerequisite for marriage, the purposes for marriage, and the priority of relationships within marriage. Let's look at this. Looking at verse 21 first and talking about first the prerequisite for a healthy Christian marriage. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Even though that's a standalone sentence in the English translation, it really is a sentence in Paul that goes back to verse 18. And because it's so closely tied with the first of chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 15 and beyond. So look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. See the rhythm of that sentence? You see, what Paul is describing is the life filled with the Spirit. When a person is filled with the Spirit, we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It doesn't mean you go up to your Christian brother or sister and just start springing, you know, singing to them. But we, we talk about what the Lord's doing in our lives. It's springing from our hearts. Even the music springs from our hearts. All right? And we do this with one another, giving thanks to God in everything. And here's what each and every one of us needs to realize, that even in the church, we submit to one another out of a love for Christ. We serve one another out of a love for Christ. And what Paul is trying to get us to understand, the prerequisite to understanding is this, Paul is not saying in this passage, okay, I'm done with the Holy Spirit, now here's marriage. That's not what he's saying. What he's describing with regard to the relationship of a husband and wife is a subheading of a greater, broader heading. This is what the Holy Spirit looks like in the life of a believer 
if you're filled with the Spirit also, this is what your marriage should look like. This is what your parenting and being an obedient child should look like. This is what an employer-employee relationship should look like. In other words, being filled with the Spirit is to have the gospel driven to the very center of your life. It's not an abstract understanding, I believe in God. We don't want to appear before the Lord one day and say, Oh, Lord, I appeared to you. And he says, I don't know you. That's most of our culture. Most of our culture says, I believe in God. This is a conviction of the truth that Jesus is who the scriptures say he is. And it becomes a living reality and it affects your entire life. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. In a similar way, if you read Colossians in concert with Ephesians, Paul says, Speak to one another in songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Do everything for the glory of God. Always have thanks in your heart toward the Father. In other words, it's all the same kind of life. And in fact, in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul goes on, he talks about husbands and wives, children and parents, and the Spirit isn't even mentioned in Colossians. Instead, at the center of it, Paul says, have the Word of God dwell in you richly. In other words, have the message of the Gospel so dwell in you so deeply, so richly, not just that you understand it intellectually, but it's who you are as a disciple of Jesus Christ. To be filled with the Spirit is to have the gospel creating such enormous joy, such enormous awe. And it's at the very center of your life. So what verse 21 is saying to us is that one of the effects of the good news is that we serve one another in the local church and it flows over into all our relationships. And it's saying that the good news of Jesus Christ erases our self-centeredness. It makes us humble. It removes our self-neediness. You ever been around needy, needy, needy people? It wears on you. If the Spirit of Gospel takes that Gospel from an abstract belief to a concrete trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And it's the center of all of our lives. Right? It makes you a person. In other words, you don't need a lot of strokes. You don't need a lot of affirmation because you're so content in who you are in Jesus and you're becoming a person who is much more able to give than to receive. So what does this have to do with marriage? Everything. Absolutely everything. When two people are filled with the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're really reshaped in the way they think about themselves and they get married, what you see in the rest of the verses is exactly what a gospel marriage looks like. All right? You see what's going on here? It's exciting. That's why I'm so excited. <laughs> when marriages in that day, this is controversial. Because in the ancient world, much like today in the Middle East, marriages were business transactions. 
We all have heard, some of our parents and grandparents were arranged marriages, even in America, right? If you live in agricultural America, we all have stories of our grandparents, great-grandparents. It was a business transaction. It was just something which the family needed to survive. And Paul comes along here and says, no, the prerequisite for marriage is the gospel. Got to understand, you submit to one another reverence for Christ, not a business transaction. That was controversial in Ephesus. And in our days, it's controversial, especially when you look at women and relationships with their husbands in, in, in here. Uh, you know, in our desire to have, to marry Mr. or Mrs. Wright, you know, we marry to live happily ever after, don't we? with romance every day of the rest of my life. Isn't that just wonderful? <laughs> it's controversial. It always has been. So, but if, when two Holy Spirit people get married and the wife grants the husband servant leadership and the husband so serves his wife in that role, by taking up Jesus' model of leadership, willing to die, not exploit his wife, living to love them or displease them. It makes all the difference in the world. So what does this mean for us practically? Especially for any singles and young people who are yet to be married, first addressing the ladies, Ladies, don't you dare trust a man with your life. Don't you dare marry a man and give a man this kind of trust unless his male ego has been permanently reshaped by the gospel. Don't trust yourself to a man unless he's filled with the Spirit. Don't trust a man unless he says to you, I will give you anything. I'm willing to sacrifice my life for you because I love you. So you can thrive. So you can flourish. It's nothing less than that. And young men, you only ask a woman to marry you if she is fully, completely surrendered all of her life. Not compartmentalized, but all of her life is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Only when you have two spirit-filled people should you really give yourselves to one another like Paul is describing here. So it, first of all, assumes two spirit-filled people, all right? Now, you know, it doesn't say in the Bible, um, does that mean that husbands make all the decisions? No. Does that mean that husbands make all the decisions about money? No. Does that mean the husband pays all the bills? No. You see... It, 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 the Bible doesn't go into the details of your relationship because relationships are unique. And the Bible says, look, two spirit-filled people entering into marriage like this, the details will work themselves out. So if the wife's better at doing plumbing, let her do the plumbing. You know? You know? That's okay. If two people get in there and get a fight over pleasing each other, like Paul is describing, these people will work out the details for themselves. And by the way, 
Ladies, if you marry a guy who says, well, this is the way it was done in my family, you run. <laughs> run. Okay? That's not a person who's been reshaped by the cross. That's not honoring biblical authority because husband and wife figure it out. Yes, you bring your family and all your baggage with you into the relationship, but as husband and wife, you, you're unique and you work it out for yourselves. And your opinion is negotiable, but Scripture is not. Okay? The Scripture says this is the principle of leadership. Work it out by pleasing one another serving one another out of a love for Jesus. That's the prerequisite. You can't go anywhere with this passage unless you get that. Secondly, we see the purpose of marriage. Another way to, to rephrase what is the purpose of marriage is to make it as a question, why do people get married? Because we've just spoken about how ancient cultures in the Middle East today, traditional cultures Marriage is still, to this day, a business transaction. It's a way to increase your family status in the community. Uh, you don't marry for romance or emotional fulfillment. You don't marry for love. You marry for security and make sure your family is taken care of because that's the primary thing. However, in our Western culture, we marry for love. We marry for romance. We marry for individual fulfillment. Someone who's going to make me happy, feel good about myself. Give you incredible affection and romantic love and whom you will find completely fulfilling. The Bible says that both those approaches are wrong and probably very harmful to you and to your spouse. And Tim Keller looks at this passage, and I encourage you, if you've never read it, if you read The Meaning of Marriage, you'll hear much of this sermon in there. Because I got, we did this last fall in the Avon Lake group, and it's just still swimming in my head. Tim Keller says that the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. Isn't that beautiful? Look at verse 25. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's beautifully stated in our opening hymn. I hope you caught it. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Right there in that first stanza of the church's one foundation, you have Ephesians 5 and Romans uh, Revelation 21 that Bob read for us. Because that's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus looks down from heaven and he sees that we're just shadows of ourselves that we're supposed to be. He sees us as ruined, fallen, self-centered, clueless creatures. And he comes and he gives himself for us. Takes our punishment for sins and when we embrace him, he comes into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I ask you, does he just bring forgiveness? 
No. Romans 8 says, those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Those he glorified, he sanctifies. Jesus is not in any way happy just to forgive us, just to grant us pardon, although he does do that. See, if you love somebody, you don't want to see them remain, keep on doing the stupid things over and over and over again that are hurting themselves. You want to make them better. So what does Jesus do? He comes into our lives with the Holy Spirit and sanctify us. means set us apart as we grow in him, die to our sin, live under our right, into his righteousness. He looks at us and says, I know what you can be. You're just a shadow of what you should be. You're absolutely incredible. You're not going to believe what you're going to become. I know. And anybody who's a Christian knows when Jesus comes into your life, he's constantly driving you to change. Constantly driving us to repent. Constantly revealing new things about ourselves and him so we can move forward and be more and more like him. So what does this mean? What's the purpose of marriage? You see, before I answer that, we in the West tend to look for the finished product. My lunch table in high school was absolutely phenomenal. We talked about everything. What kind of girl are you looking for, Gene? And we would all, oh, that was like the question of the day, you know? And so you got 12 dudes, I'm talking raunchy dudes, saying, what kind of woman are you looking for? And, you know, I would have said something like, well, she's beautiful, she pulled together, she's accomplished, she's smart, and she's got money because I'm not going to have any because I'm going to be a teacher and a coach. (laughs) That's not gospel reenactment. But what we're that's the modern idea of personal individual fulfillment. And to fall in love deep, and we, what, what we, Paul is calling us to is to fall in love with a deeply deeper vision of the other person. Because when one Holy Spirit-filled person of one sex meets another Holy Spirit-filled person of another sex, and they imagine themselves on the final day, the final judgment, and all who we're going to be in the new creation, when we look at that other person as that person, that's gospel reenactment. To fall in love with somebody, see what God is doing that person, and committed to that person's future self. That's the purpose of marriage. That I'm going to do for you what Jesus did for me. And serving you no matter what. But that's not what our culture does, right? Our culture says, you meet me halfway, I'll meet you halfway. So that when the other spouse only meets you 30% of the way, well, you only go 30% of the way. Sociologists call that commodification. All right? What Paul is talking about here is a covenant. A binding promise before God and his people that have consequences for living into those promises to love one another out of a reverence for Christ, right? And consequences if we don't do that. They're spiritual and physical. 
and emotional consequences. It's important that we get this language of covenant. That I will meet your needs even if you're not meeting mine. That's what Paul is saying. There's nothing more fulfilling when two Holy Spirit-filled people being in relationship with another is not seeking personal fulfillment, but rather that the other person would flourish in their walk with the Lord and in this world. Now, it's important to understand that we all bump up into issues in marriage. Every single marriage I've ever known bumps up into issues. And I've mentioned him before because, especially if you were with us last fall in Avon Lake group, the Duke scholar Stanley Hauerwas says that the biblical understanding of marriage is neither the traditional understanding or the modern understanding. He says, quote, Destructive to marriage is a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we, we are going to marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry just the right person, just give it a while, he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means that we're not the same person after we've entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Ask anyone who's been married for a while, they will tell you, spot on, that's no exaggeration. Therefore, the purpose of our marriages, according to Paul and the full counsel of the Word of God, is gospel reenactment. That I'm going to serve you no matter how you respond. Which leads to the third point. What's the priority of marriage in our relationship? What, what is our priority as husband and wife? Is this the priority relationship in all my life? Paul says, no, it's not. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says, all this marital stuff that I've just been talking to you about, and the submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ in the church and in marriage, that's all pointing to a greater reality. You, you know, and you might you know, look at the traditional marriage and the modern view of marriage, the traditional marriages, when it goes over the top. You know, even today... Marriage in traditional cultures is everything. It's the priority relationship in that Eastern culture, especially Middle Eastern culture. So that if one spouse commits adultery, the whole other family goes out and they kill him. That's called honor killing. Why? Because you've shamed the family. Sometimes it's their own family. They go out and they kill you because you shamed the family, disgraced the family. Because... The honor and the cohesion, the priority of relationships and family is everything. And you're probably thinking, well, I'm glad we're not like that. We're not? You know, when you, we Western people, we might not go with honor killings, but when we make marriage the supreme priority relationship, my wife the supreme relationship in all my life, 
there's nothing above her. You know, my marriage is about making me happy. There was a sociologist in the mid-20th century named Ernest Becker. He was an atheist. He was a secular thinker. But he had a great revelation that I think we can learn from. He says, one of the first ways that occurred was romantic solution. That the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs, which used to be focused on God, now become focused on the individual. But the failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is a big part of modern humanity's frustration, written 75 years ago. No human relationship can bear the burden of the Godhead, is what he's saying. He's saying if God isn't the most important thing in your life, and the other person is the most important thing in your life, they cannot bear that weight. It's impossible. Nobody can live up to that. No human relationship can bear that burden. However much we may idealize, idolize, and love that partner, he or she will inevitably will reflect the earth in decay and imperfection. Needless to say, human romantic love can't sustain and cannot give you that. But we seek it anyway. We especially seek it in our music. You remember the Righteous Brothers, right? Right? You're my soul and my heart's inspiration. You're all I got to get me by. You're my soul and my heart's inspiration. Without you, baby, what good am I? You kidding me? It's a good, catchy song, isn't it? Yeah, I like it, but man, I feel bad for those dudes' wives. The fact is, we believe that, we buy that, we sing that, and there's millions of love songs just like it. Really. If you really fall radically in love with somebody, you might even believe in God, but your belief is more of an abstraction than a personal conviction. And that person's love is what makes you feel good about yourself, and that will be an absolute disaster because they will let you down. And that's the point that Paul's making. Verse, verse uh, 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Because it's the love of Jesus Christ who is our groom. Every single one of us. We are the bride of Christ. We heard John's revelation as the city of Jerusalem is coming down in this vision that John gets. It's the Holy Spirit swifts him away and says, I'm going to show you the bride of Christ. That's who we'll be. That's who we're going to be. Because Jesus Christ came to his own, but his own received him not. He looked in the heart of his bride, the people he came to love, the people he came to love and cherish to death, do they part. And he saw self-centeredness. He saw cluelessness. And yet he died for us anyway. The very people he was dying for and coming to love crucified him. 
Now, I know some of you probably feel like marriage is being like crucified, all right? But in Jesus' case, it really happened. He didn't divorce you. He stuck with you and died and stayed in the marriage anyway. That is why, if you've taken Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can do this. I can recognize the love of Jesus Christ for me, no matter how my spouse treats me, and love him, love her with that kind of love, because I am loved supremely by Jesus Christ. Does that mean, Gene, you do whatever, no matter what that person does? No. For is that the loving thing to do? Is it ever a loving thing to let somebody sin against you? No. Jesus, of course, doesn't let you do that. He sanctifies you. He corrects you. Right? He'll never let you go to become the person you ought to be, so you lay down the boundaries in marriage. And you tell the truth in love. We've talked about that. And you do confront if they're falling short. Because if you love Jesus, you're able to do that. If and only if, he's the priority relationship in your life and your spouse is a close second. Then you can speak the truth in love and you can be in this covenant relationship that we're speaking of and be faithful even to someone who's not all that nice to you at times, who didn't always do what you asked him to do. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking that if you're not married, if you're young, when I get married, or if you've got some years under you, if only I were married, then life would be great. Ladies and gentlemen, you're looking at a happily married man. I love that woman. She's phenomenal. She is the woman of my dreams, and it's great, but i got to tell you, being happily married does not help you face life the way you think it will. It's not enough. It doesn't fill up the deepest part of your heart, and it will not help you face death. The only spouse who can love and really fill your heart and give you what you really want and need awaits you if you will place your trust in him alone. I'm also sure there's some of you that are probably in some unhappy marriages. You might be sitting right next to your spouse and you're unhappy. And you're thinking, if only my spouse were everything he or she ought to be, everything would be great in my life. Well, that doesn't work either, Paul is saying. The one spouse you need is available, and if Jesus is central to your life, then you'll be able to handle an unhappy marriage a lot better than you're handling it now. And alas, I think it's a, an important comment to make. You know, we live in the suburbs, right? And we moved here because it's a nice place to build a family and a legacy. And what we want to do, we want to design our home and we want to design our marriage. We want to design our kids with designer cars and designer clothes, right? But you know, if you look behind the designer lifestyle of all these people in Avon Lake, Avon, Bay, Sheffield Lake, it's all over the West Shore. If 
you look, you open up the blinds to those homes, you're going to recognize they're a mess. Because here's the biblical understanding of marriage. You're a mess. You married a hot mess. And you created messes. All right? And when you get the good news of Jesus in your life and you realize that you give birth to little messes, <laughs> marriage is all about healing and repair because Jesus is our groom. He's repairing our lives each and every day. And therefore, when I go into the mess of this world and I'm sitting on the PTA, and you might think to yourself, these people don't think like me. Well, of course they don't. They're like Ephesians. They're like Colossians. Don't expect them to. We're going to shine the light as we live this way, as we submit to one another our love for Christ in the church, in our families, in our jobs. Oh, it'll be powerful. Trust me. Because marriage is all about healing and repair. And we sang about it. With his own blood, he bought you. And for your life, he died. That's the prerequisite. That's the purpose. Make him your priority spouse. And your spouse physical spouse, a close second. You are the bride of Christ. Are you? Let's receive his love anew. Let's pray. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us what we need in order to deal with our relationships and in this thing called marriage. We need the good news of Jesus to be married well we need the good news of Jesus to be single well. We need the good news to keep from making our good marriages into idols. We need the good news of Jesus to keep us from making our troubled marriages into places where we cannot flourish at all. All of us need the good news of Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that in an increasing manner we would know the love of Jesus Christ, our groom, this day. And that he is, by his Holy Spirit, making the gospel real in our hearts. And that we can handle anything that life throws at us and flourish. And be members of the family of God together. Submitting to one another out of a love for Christ addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of our hearts. Make that a reality in every one of our lives this morning, for we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.